All right, so vision. So far, we've been looking in this short series on vision at the importance of having a clarity of vision about Jesus. How many of you heard Wendy, that first kind of session, this term, about five of us, don't know where the rest of you were. It was amazing. And Wendy was just reminding us again, it's all about Jesus. Everything. If you were to have a vision about anything or anyone, it's to be about him. It's for him, to him, through him, because of Jesus. Jesus is our shining vision in every season. No matter what season you're in, it's Jesus all the way. And then last week, we looked at what it means to have vision even in the tough seasons of life. When you're walking through the valley, you're walking through the wilderness. How can you have a a vision of what God's doing in those seasons? And today, we're just going to start looking at what we have vision for in the year ahead. I'm going to look at the first part of that today, and then we're going to carry on next week. But vision is so crucial. Someone once said this, that for a man that doesn't have vision, he will always return to his past. Or as Proverbs 29 says it, without vision, people perish or cast off restraint. Because it's vision that gives us a compelling picture of the future that gives us a reason to get up in the morning. It's that, that inner energy, that sense of there is something outside of just myself that is propelling and compelling me to live a life of meaning, of dignity and purpose. Vision is absolutely critical. It's a picture of the future that produces passion. So my question for you this morning is, what is the picture of the future that is producing passion in your life right now? What is that picture What is it that you've got in your head when you look at this next 12 months? What is that compelling vision that makes you excited when you get up in the morning? You think, yep, I am ready to rumble. I've got a vision in my heart. I'm going to live for that this year. What is that thing for you? Because without vision, it's very easy to drift. This is a, a woman that many of you will have heard of. Her name is Rosa Parks. And Rosa Parks, in 1955, she was part of the uh, black civil rights movement in America. And at the time in Alabama, which is where she lived, there was very uh, serious racial segregation. So much so that on the buses in Alabama, you had a blacks-only section and a whites-only section. And if you were a black man or a black woman in, in that particular place and time, if a white person walked onto the bus, you had to give up your seat by law for them. And the civil rights movement was starting to build up ahead of steam, and she had a passion of a racially equal America. And one day, she took her seats in the, in the black-only section of the bus, and a white man got on the bus, and he had nowhere to sit, and he came to ask her for her seat, and she refused to give it to him in a moment of defiance. And suddenly, in that moment, Rosa Parks kind of became this figurehead, this catalyst of the black civil rights movement in America because she had a vision of something that caused her to stay seated. Here's another guy with vision. His name's Chris Froome. He is the uh, current Tour de France holder, and he's also just won another very long bike race called the Vuelta de España. He's one of only three men to hold the Tour de France and the Vuelta de España at the same time. He's an incredible rider. And uh, someone asked him at the penultimate stage of the Vuelta de España, you know, how did you keep going on that last climb? Because the last climb, it was like a 117-kilometer race, and the last climb was 12 kilometers up, And at one point, it was 25.5% gradient. I mean, can you just imagine climbing up that thing? And so someone said to him, Chris, what, what kept you going? What kept you in your saddle? And he said, well, 
He said, one of my team promised that if I got to the top of the mountain, I could have a little bag of Haribo sweets. <laughs> and he said, I decided to focus on the sweets instead of the pain, and it just kept me going to the top of the mountain. Isn't that amazing? I mean, whether it's a vision of racial equality or Haribo sweets, what is it in your life that keeps you in the saddle, that keeps you in your seat, that makes you think, I'm going to live for something beyond myself that's going to keep me going? Vision is absolutely critical. And Sharon, uh, one of the members in our church, gave us earlier this year a scripture, and it's Psalm 65. And I want to read you a portion from it because it really captures what we feel our vision for this next year is. And it's a vision of God's super abundance. We read some sections for you. Psalm 65. What mighty praise, O God, belongs to you in Zion. We will fulfill our vows to you, for you answer our prayers. What joy for those you choose to bring near, those who live in your holy courts. What festivities await us inside your holy temple. You faithfully answer our prayers with awesome deeds. O oh God, our Savior, the river of God has plenty of water. It provides a bountiful harvest of grain, for you have ordered it so. You crown the year with a bountiful harvest. Even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. What a beautiful promise right there. Even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness become a lush pasture and the hillsides blossom with joy. This is one of David's psalms and it's a psalm of just triumphant celebration in the nature of a super abundant God. He looks at the year that's just gone and he's looking into the year it's about to come and he says, God, you are a God of abundance. Even the wilderness will be glad. Even the hard pathways are going to become a place of super abundance because that is what you are like. You see, you cannot serve the God that we worship about and sing about without having a vision of something that is far beyond your natural ability to conjure up because he is a God of grace upon grace. He's a God of superabundance. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Ephesians 3.19, he says, listen, I pray that you would know this love. It's so high, so wide, so deep, so long. It's a, it's a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. That's the knowledge I'm praying that you would know. It's far beyond your ability to even think or imagine. I pray that you would be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. I mean, if you want a big prayer, that's a big prayer right there. If you're praying for someone, I pray that you would be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. That's a big prayer because God's infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has no boundaries. Paul's saying, listen, our God is a God of super abundance. And so when you think about the year ahead and you think about your life, you need to look at it through this lens. God has promised to abundantly bless my life and make me a blessing to others. That's how he's made you to be someone who encounters and experiences his lavish, reckless, totally over-the-top grace. Isn't that amazing? You are a magnet for the over-the-top, reckless grace of God. Like, you are right in the crosshairs of God's grace gun right now. He's a God of superabundant grace. And of course, you know, we see this not just individually, but as a church community, and when we look back this year, we can say, God, you have done more than we could ask or imagine. I mean, here are just a few highlights. Did you know 
that 29,000 people accessed King's Arms Media last year. I don't know where they're all coming from, but someone's watching stuff out there, 29,000 of them. Steve told me this week there are 33,000 individual people who've accessed our website this year. I don't know who they are, but someone's looking at it. 33,000. Do you know that this year, 40,000 people have used this building, not including church meetings. 40,000 people, this building, serving community, building community life. I mean, I turned up on whenever it was this week, and I obviously arrived at the same time as the police. I thought they may have come for me, but they hadn't. But, you know, we, we are serving different parts of our community. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. As Simon said earlier, this year we've housed our very first Syrian refugees. It's such a beautiful thing, literally to be the first ones at the airport to meet them as they get off the plane, having walked through unimaginable terror and suddenly finding a place that they can call home. Suddenly finding family, finding hope, finding someone who cares. That's happened this last year. That's amazing. Then one of our Missional community groups that reaches into Yarlswood Immigration Center, they were able to bless 147 inmates this last Christmas with Christmas gifts that never would have received them otherwise. That's happened through our church this year. We've got 50 groups this year, more than any other, working into all sorts of different parts of our community, bringing life, bringing hope. Did you know that our hospitality teams this year have served over 10,000 cups of tea and coffee? Just wave at me if you are on the hospitality team or have ever served teas and coffees in this church. Just raise your hand. There's more of you. (coughs) That's a lot of tea and coffee right there. Over a thousand liters of squash have been made for visitors. Isn't that amazing? A thousand liters of squash and probably more sugary biscuits than is good for us. But that is incredible. And of course, what all these big numbers paint is not just a, a kind of amorphous, faceless picture, but each one speaks of an individual life that's been touched by God in some way. In some way. I love the story of Amu, who was visiting from Mumbai. She was visiting Bedford for three weeks. I'm not quite sure why she was in Bedford, but she was. And she was here. Uh, she'd never been outside of India, and she was visiting here. And she thought to herself, I want to go to church before I leave to go back home. And so on her final Sunday in Bedford, she decided that she would take herself to a bus stop and that she would get on the bus and then get off at the first church building that she saw. And she waited for half an hour and no bus came. (laughs) But I think it was the Lord. Because after half an hour, she saw our friend Justin Wharton and his two kids walking past the bus stop on his way to set up teas and coffees in the building. And she stopped him and said, excuse me, I don't suppose you can tell me where I can find a church. And he says, well, I'm going to one right now. You can come with me. And so Amu starts walking to our church building with Justin, and they start having a conversation. She comes in the building. Someone makes her a cup of tea. Someone gives her a warm welcome. She feels incredible sense of love in this building. She then sits next to our friend Manjeet, who just befriends her and starts talking to her about her faith and about her story. They, they strike up a kind of sense of connection. And then in the worship time, she starts singing these songs and she starts to just weep and cry as the presence of God comes upon her. Then she hears Wendy talk about God being our good shepherd and she starts to get that sense of conviction. Then she hears our eight-year-olds come and give words of knowledge, one of which was for healing. She responds, gets healed instantly as they pray for her. 
and then gives her life to Christ as she goes and sits back next to Manji. <clears throat> and then she flies home the next day. And then she writes into the office. She says, thank you so much. My life has been turned around. I can't wait to come back and visit. I'm always going to remember God is my shepherd. Isn't that amazing? What I love about that story is that so many different people played a part. Whether it was Justin at the bus stop with his kids, whether it was someone making a cup of tea, whether it's Manjit making her feel welcome, whether it's Wendy preaching the gospel, whether it's a child taking a risk and giving a word of knowledge and praying. We are a family that is doing things on a big scale, but it represents individual lives. That's amazing. Tim and Kathy Lees were telling me this week that over the summer, they were in the offices, not many people were around, and a gentleman came in and he was well-dressed, but he'd just been made homeless. And uh, they began to talk to him, and he said, I've got nowhere to live tonight. I've just been kicked out of my lodgings. I don't know what to do. Will you help me? And so they put him in the back of their car and began to drive him to our night shelter and began to speak hope and life to him. And they said, just out of interest, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Iran. Now, Tim and Kathy speak fluent Farsi. They used to live in Tajikistan. And so they just start speaking to him in fluent Farsi. At which point he just starts to break down and weep in the back of the car. And they stop the car, Tim hugs him, and suddenly the kingdom just shows up right there. I mean, isn't that amazing? See, God, there are many things we have planned, but I tell you what, God will do more than we can ask or imagine. Because he's the God of superabundance. And we've got to think like that when you're in the kingdom. And so across this year, there are some things that we're wanting to invest in and focus our attention on, and there'll be more things besides these three things. God will do more than we can ask or imagine, but there are three things that we want to focus our prayers and our energy and our giving and our attention to. And I'm going to focus on the first one of those today, which is the upward vision of being a joy-filled house of prayer. So before we get there, I think we should just pause and just thank God for what he's done across this last 12 months. So can you stand with me? I'd love us to just take a moment collectively just to thank God for his faithfulness to us. Do you know, celebration is such a key part of community life. And sometimes in our busyness, we forget to stop and just say thanks. And so why don't you just with me, just close your eyes, maybe lift your hands to the Lord. And let's lift our voices together. Let's just begin to thank him for his goodness across this last year. Let's just begin to thank him. Lift your voice out loud. He loves to hear your voice. Let's just begin to thank him for his kindness, for his mercy, for every prayer answered, for every breakthrough, every life changed. Thank him that he's helped you. He's sustained you. Thank him. Thank you for every word he's spoken. Every blessing in your family, in your workplace. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Just thank him for his grace, sustaining your life, even in the tough moments in this last 12 months. Just thank him. Father, you've been faithful. You've been kind. You've had more than enough for me. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you're a God of superabundance more than we can ask or imagine. Thank you, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you that the river of God has abundant water. <laughs> Thank you, even the hard pathways will flow with water. Thank you, Father, even the wilderness will burst into life. Bless you, Father. We bless you for your goodness. 
Wow. Thank you, Father. Just keep going. Just for 20 more seconds. Just, just exercise your thankfulness muscles. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And Lord, we want to lift your name on high. And Lord, we want to thank you for the works you've done in our lives. And Lord, we trust in your unfailing love. For you alone are God eternal throughout earth and heaven above. And Lord, we want to lift your name on high. And Lord, we want to thank you for the works you've done in our lives. And Lord, we trust in your unfailing love. For you alone are God eternal throughout earth and heaven above. Let's just applaud the Lord, shall we? Let's thank him for his goodness. Thank you, Father. We love you, Lord. Thank you, God. Amen. So, a joy-filled house of prayer and worship. This is what our psalm says. It says, what joy for those you choose to bring near, those who live in your holy courts. We are, have a vision of becoming an increasingly joy-filled house of prayer and worship. Can I hear an amen from at least five people? Do you know, we, we already are in some respects a joy-filled house of prayer and worship. But how many of you know there is much more to come? There is much more to come. Do, do you know that the most dangerous moment in a football match, as Brighton discovered on Friday nights, the most dangerous point in a football match is when you've just scored a goal. <laughs> you, you, you go one nil up, you're away from home, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, and it's all going pretty well. But the most dangerous place in a football match is when you stop doing what got you there in the first place. As soon as you start taking a defensive mindset and start thinking, we're going to play so that we don't lose rather than to win, suddenly it starts to go pear-shaped. Because you drop the ball, you get complacent, you start to second-guess yourself, you stop doing what made you successful in the first place. And I want to suggest to you that one of the greatest enemies of our future success is our current success. Why is that? Because it's very easy when you start entering fruitfulness to stop doing the things that made you fruitful in the first place. And you start resting and trusting in your methodologies and your programs and your tried and tested ABCs rather than trusting on the God who inspired them in the first place. Jesus said, listen, this is the way that you bear fruit. Abide in me, I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit to the Father's glory. And you know what? The method has not changed. The way that you bear fruit is not trusting in a methodology. It's trusting in a person. And that's why this is such a big deal, being a joy-filled house of prayer and worship. Because if we don't advance on our knees, we will not advance at all. 
If your vision is able to be fulfilled in your own strength, you do not have a vision that was birthed in heaven. Because if it was birthed in heaven, it would be far beyond your capability to achieve in your own strength. Because if you can achieve it in your own strength, there is no need for you to depend on God whatsoever. Dependence on God is how we got here. It's how we're bearing fruit. It's because at the beginning, we were looking at him and saying, we can't do this. Only you can do this. Church of a thousand people, that's preposterous. How on earth are we going to do that? The answer is we haven't. He has. Because we depended on him. We looked to him. We worshipped him. We, we got our strength in his presence. Not from anywhere else. And sometimes your future success is enemies, your current success. It was Arthur Wallace who said this, that any move of God will only last as long as the spirit of prayer that first inspired it. Let me just say that again. Any move of God will only last as long as the spirit of prayer that first inspired it. In other words, you've got to do what you first did. This is my challenge to you. Are you doing what you did at first? This is particularly for those of you that have been around the block a few times. You've been a Christian for many years. Maybe some of you have been in this church for many years. Are you still doing the things that you did at first? Do you still get up on a Sunday morning and think, I'm going to pray for this meeting that the glory of God comes? Do you still do that? Because I bet some of you did that at first, but you don't do it any longer. Why? Because you're trusting somebody else's faith that it will happen. You're still doing the things that you did at first. Or actually you're leaning into somebody else's story, somebody else's faith, somebody else's, somebody else's passion, somebody else's vision. Because a move of God will only last as long as we remember what we did at first. We're going to depend on him. And so we want to keep leaning into becoming a joy-filled house of prayer and worship. This is what Isaiah 56, 7 says. It says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Now the key word in that verse is this, joy. Joy. Now that may not be what you associate prayer with. You may not associate prayer with joy. But listen, do you know what? The word joy and fellowship with God are the most natural bedfellows in the whole world. Those two things should naturally go together because you cannot find lasting joy outside of fellowship with him. That's where joy really comes from. It comes from him, the original joy giver, the joy bringer, God himself. Your joy is found in fellowship. It's found in prayer. It's found in worship. And you know, I've been in plenty of somber prayer meetings through the years. You know, I remember the first CU meeting I went to as a student at Newcastle University, 1995. There I was, all zealous, ready to rumble, ready to go. And I remember the, the guy leading the CU meeting, he kicked off my very first CU meeting with these immortal words. Let's just all bow our heads and remember how bad we've been this week. And there we sat in silence for two minutes while we remembered all the sins we'd committed that week. Because <laughs> that, was the, that was the canvas that they were doing life on when it came to fellowship with God. They were looking through the canvas of, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner rather than I'm an accepted son. You know, and I, I remember he used to lead the hall group that I was in, which was like a Bible study. And I remember, again, the first Bible study after that meeting that I went to with him, I thought, I'm going to give this another shot. So I, I turn up in his hall's room, 
And there's about six of us sitting around in a circle, opening our Bibles, and we're doing a Bible study on holiness. And behind him, as he's leading a Bible study on holiness, is a picture of a semi-naked woman in his room. And he's like, so what do you think holiness means for us? I'm like, well, you can start by ripping that poster down. He's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it captures something of what he thought of when he came into God's presence, that actually it wasn't about being joy-filled. It was about searching your sins first. And even that, he didn't really have a right handle on either. But Isaiah says, I will give them joy in my house of prayer. It should be a place of celebration and thanksgiving. Well, we understand my sins have been removed from me. I'm too good to live like that now. I've been saved to a father who loves me. That's what prayer really looks like. Joy and fellowship go together. And so one of my prayers for you and me this year is that may God increase your capacity for joy. May God give you more joy this year. Tell you what, if you get 12 months time, if you look back and say, I'm more joyful than I was in September, you would have had a great year. Because you were made for joy. Let me read you this long quote, but a good quote by John Piper. He says this. If a lifeguard saves you from the undertow of the Atlantic Ocean, you don't really care if he's gloomy. It doesn't matter what his mental state is when you're hugging your family on the beach. But with the salvation of Jesus, things are very different. Jesus does not save us for our family, but for himself. If he is gloomy, our salvation will be sad. And that is no great salvation because Jesus himself and all that God is for us in him is our great reward, nothing less. Salvation is not mainly the forgiveness of sins, but mainly the fellowship of Jesus. Forgiveness gets everything out of the way so that this can happen. If this fellowship is not all satisfying, then there is no great salvation. If Christ is gloomy or even calmly stoical, eternity will be a long, long sigh. But the glory and grace of Jesus is that he is and always will be indestructibly happy. (laughs) It would not be fully gracious of Jesus simply to increase my joy to its final limit and then leave me short of his. My capacities for joy, after all, are very confined. So Christ not only offers himself as the divine object of my joy, but pours his capacity for joy into me so that I can enjoy him with the very joy of God. This is glory and this is grace. It is not glorious to be gloomy. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. His gladness is greater than all the angelic gladness of heaven and he mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth of his Father. Father. Love that. My prayer for you this year is may God increase your capacity for joy. May you be joyful like your father is joyful. And let me tell you, the best kind of warfare is joyfare. The best kind of warfare you can do is not shaking your fist at the enemy, but have a good old laugh at his lies. Because I tell you, the enemy cannot do joy. Scripture says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. In other words, the enemy has no jurisdiction on joy. That is the Father's business. And you are about your Father's business, which is incredibly joy-filled. May God increase and enlarge your capacity for joy. How will that happen? It will happen in the place of worship and in the place of fellowship and prayer 
with him. And that's why we want to invest in a few practical things to make this happen. The first of those is just to create more prayer opportunities this year. If joy comes from fellowship with God, we want to multiply our opportunities for fellowship with God. And so this year we're going to be starting lots of different prayer opportunities. We've just started our early morning prayer meeting on Friday mornings. If you're free at 7 a.m. in the morning on Fridays, come and pray. Seriously, come and pray. Uh, If you're looking for a marriage partner, come to the prayer meeting and have your pick of whoever comes to pray. I'm absolutely serious. That is the kind of man or the kind of woman you want to marry. I would not have married Carol if she had not turned up at the prayer meeting. I'm serious, I wouldn't. (laughs) Because prayer actually reveals what's in here. We're going to gather a monthly prayer meeting. There'll be lots of opportunities to pray. And as that video said, we're going to create a dedicated prayer space that's going to be open for us to seek God together. And that's one of the things that we want to finish this year. And you know, prayer spaces can be incredibly powerful things. Back in uh, 1999, a man called Pete Gregg started a prayer room in southern England. And he was a kind of young 20-something, and he said, I didn't really know how to pray. None of us knew how to pray, but we felt like we should learn. And so we opened a prayer space in a basement in a small church in southern England. And then he said, one day, God sneezed on that prayer meeting, and it went viral. (laughs) I love that. God sneezed, and it went viral. And he, he said, one night... At 3 a.m. in the morning, he was wrestling with his own passion for an emerging generation to pursue God. And he began to write a poem on the wall of that prayer room. And it became known as The Vision. And it's his passion that young people in this nation would again find Christ. And he just wrote it on the wall as his own prayer. And he said within one year, that prayer had literally gone halfway around the world. It had reached 100,000 churches in China. 400,000 in Washington, D.C. at a prayer breakfast. Suddenly, God breathed on something in that small prayer room and took it all over the world. Now there are over 10,000 prayer spaces inspired by that prayer space that are in literally over half the nations on this planet. It all happens through dedicated prayer. Karl Barth, a theologian, said this, He said, to clasp our hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. Don't if you ever look at your TV screens or listen to the news and think, what on earth can we do? In the face of such disorder and chaos and anxiety, I'll tell you what you can do. The first step is clasp your hands in prayer. Because that's the start of an uprising against the chaos in this world. You can pray. Pete says this, a prayer room is first and foremost a living room, a place where the father waits for his children to come and climb into his arms. This year, we're going to be a joy-filled house of prayer. Secondly, we want to invest in new sights and new sounds. And particularly, we want to finish the kind of media uh, studio up there, which will enable us to capture new songs and interviews and stories of what God is doing in our church and release them around the world. And, you know, the reality is you live in a day very different than 10 years ago. You live in a day where 81% of people on this planet would say they've at some point used YouTube, which is now the biggest social media provider across the whole world. It has 1 billion regular users. 
The average person in the UK watches two hours of online content every single day. In other words, 81% of you in this room at some point today will go home and watch something on your computer. You will. I guarantee it. And that is the world that you and I live in. You live in a world of virtual sound bites, of quick stories, of things that are grabbing for your attention. That is the world that you live in. And that is, of course, intensely challenging, but it gives you some incredible opportunities. Because suddenly you can reach one billion people with a click of a button. That is the opportunity for the gospel in the culture in which we live. Do you know, uh, Jack Kircher recently did this brilliant little recording of a song that Damien Miller did, an absolutely beautiful song about the grace of God. Do you know, just in a few weeks, 7,000 people have watched that song. And it's a song about the grace of the Father, how he comes to us, kisses us with his grace. 7,000 people like that. And that is the world that you and I live in. And that's why this stuff really matters. And actually, in all the historic moves of God, it's the songs that have taken the values of those moves and taken them around the world. It's been the same right throughout history, whether it's hill songs, whether it's vineyards, whether it's the Methodist revival, whether it's the Salvation Army, right through the last two, three hundred years, it's actually been the songs that have been written in those moves of God that have carried it all over the world. Do you know that Charles Wesley wrote 9,000 hymns in his lifetime? That is more than 10 verses a day, which he did for over 50 years. 50 years. I mean, he wrote songs for every single occasion. I was reading one this week that he wrote specifically when you're being stoned by the mob and you're preaching. He wrote a song for that occasion. <laughs> I mean, he wrote a song for every occasion. It was amazing. And it was the values in those songs that literally spread all over the world. It's the same in the Salvation Army. You know, in William Booth's day, if you could play a flugelhorn or a trumpet, then you were really down with the kids. I mean, that was like the thing to do. Put on a uniform and blow a trumpet. If you really wanted to be on the cutting edge of technology, that's what you did. And so for his kind of young uh, guides in his movement, he said, go and learn how to play the flugelhorn. <laughs> go and find an instrument and play it to the glory of God. This is what he said. You must sing good tunes. Amen. Let it be a good tune to begin with. I don't care much whether you call it secular or sacred. I rather enjoy robbing the devil of his choicest tunes. It's like taking the enemy's guns and turning them against him. I love that. See, in his day, it was a trumpet. In our day, it's social media. It's YouTube. It's getting stories out. It's our gift from God today to increase the glory of God wherever people can click a mouse. And that's why it's important to invest in such things. And then the third area of investment is in our new service and also new clarity because we kicked off our third meeting last week, which is amazing. Our third Sunday service is 7 p.m. every single Sunday night. Come tonight, come and have a blast. Those evenings are designed to encounter God together and be a space where we can meet him in worship. And one of the ways that we want to increase joy-filled house of prayer and worship is by enlarging the number of opportunities to do that and to start reaching people that may not be able to make it on a Sunday morning. And that is one of the key things we want to invest in across this year. And, you know, that room that we've built through there, which is what we're using for our evening meetings, is already being used by kids in their dedicated worship. They are absolutely having a blast, by the way. I was talking to Nikki Stanyard after the first week of them doing dedicated kids' worship, and she's like, it was absolutely amazing. 
She said, you know, the kids were so engaged with God. She said, we had one couple who were looking in to join our team, and they hadn't made a decision yet. And I came to them afterwards, and I said, what do you think? Did you enjoy it? And they're like, that was amazing. Can we come every single week? We don't ever want to leave this team because we so encountered the presence of God as we worship with these kids this morning. Nikki said at one point, I think it was Robbie Burke, just started to spontaneously kind of break dance and body pop in worship. And one kid got so excited, he literally started to run around the room. You know, there was such a sense of joy there. He said, God is going to do incredible things in, our, in the lives of our kids because of that dedicated space to worship. And one of the practical things that we really want to sort out this year is the sound. <laughs> because if you've been in there, you'll know it needs sorting out. And so... Our best solution for the long term is to replace both this system and put a new one in there. So we're going to sell this. We're going to put something that gives us brilliant sound both in here and there. So the reality is a Ford Fiesta can only do what a Ford Fiesta can do. Okay? And we believe that one of the things that God's calling us to do is to not miss a word of what he's saying. We want the sound in here to be the best it can possibly be. We want it to be warm. We want it to be welcoming. We want it to be palatable for every single ear, which at the minute we just can't quite do. And so we want to invest in good sound that enables us not to miss a word of what Jesus is saying. This stuff matters because people matter. And so these are the things that we're going after, a joy-filled house of prayer and worship. And just as we come in for a landing, the reason that we always tie vision with giving our money, is that if we don't, then it's just wishful thinking. <laughs> because you don't have a vision unless you also have some action. It is just wishful thinking. You know, if Rosa Parks had made the decision to give up her seat, perhaps her dream for racial equality would have stayed in the realm of wishful thinking. But she decided to do something because she had a vision for something. And my invitation to you is to come and join this journey, this vision, to buy in both in your time and your prayer and your money. Did you know that 35% of people in this church give regularly? And those 35% of people give 90% of our annual offering every year. Did you catch that? In other words, there is a great opportunity for 60% of you who give nothing into the ministry and the life of this church. And really is the difference between wishful thinking and saying, this is not just your vision, this is my vision. And I don't care if it's 10 pence, if it's a button off your coat, or if it's 100,000 pounds, I don't care what it is. But I tell you, if you believe in this vision, then give yourself to it. Give something into it. Give your prayers, your energies, your time, your money. Because I tell you, this is something worth investing in because it changes lives. And last year taught us that. We have a God of super abundance. And there is so much more to come.